Let's pray together. God, thank you. Uh, God, thank you that we can gather together and behold you, Lord, your, your greatness and your glory. God, we can behold your beauty, know that you are seated on the throne right now, that you've been seated on the throne for all of eternity past and you will be for all of eternity future and you sit there right now. God, and we can trust in your goodness and the way that it is that you're orchestrating the world in our lives. God, I pray that as we hear from your word, as we continue in worship this morning, God, that we would see Jesus clearly. God, his finished work on our behalf, the fact that he's seated there at your right hand interceding for us, God. Lord, I pray that we would be refreshed and sustained. God, I pray that we would be confronted and encouraged by the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, would your spirit speak that to us this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Hey, as you grab a seat, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs and you can kind of mark two spots, Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 40, and then Proverbs 13, verse 4. That's where we're going we're gonna to finish. If you're joining us, uh, maybe you've been in and out a bit over the course of the summer, or maybe you're checking out our church at the start of a new year, school year here. We're in the middle of what's been a series in Proverbs throughout the course of the summer, and it has functioned a little bit differently than would be normal for us. Typically, what we do is we take one large passage of scripture or we take one whole book and then we work through it verse by verse over a number of weeks. But with the book of Proverbs, it makes more sense to go thematically because Proverbs kind of jumps around a little bit. And so over the course of the summer, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, asking the question, what is gospel-centered wisdom in our various relationships, whether that's marriage or parenting or friendship, what's gospel-centered wisdom as it relates to work like we're going to talk about this morning or decision-making or in our worship. We've been running that lens through the various themes that appear all throughout Proverbs. And so this morning, we're going to talk about work, vocation, career, but also work in a more expansive um, view than that. And then we're going to finish this series over the next two weeks. And just as a note, I'm going to be out over the next two weeks. So we'll have teachers from our team teaching. Bob Vogelar will teach next week. And then Brian Bliss, our worship pastor, will teach uh, the final week of this series. And I'm going to be out uh, on two weeks of study leave doing kind of some concentrated Uh, looking into some organizational things for our church for the future. And so I'll still be around. I just won't be uh, teaching over the next couple of weeks because I'll be using the time to to do some long-range sort of planning on behalf of our church. Um, But we'll finish out this Proverbs series, and then actually on September 8th, we're going to jump into what we'll do throughout the school year, which is going to be the book of Hebrews. So, but this morning... We're going to talk about work, and I want to expand the definition of work a little bit because it'd be easy to come in and sort of pigeonhole this into career or vocation, but uh, when the Bible talks about work, it talks about whatever it is that you sort of set your hands to. So it could be that you stay at home and 
you're a stay-at-home parent or you're a homemaker or whatever the case might be, and that's what you set your hands to every single day. It could be that you're retired and you had a career, a vocation for X number of years, but now you're in a new season of life. And you might even be searching for what is it that I should be setting my hands to at this point in my life. It could be that you're a student and the thing that you set your hands to every day is school. So what does the Bible, what does scripture have to say about how the gospel intersects with our work? One question that we've been asking every week of this series is what does the world say about whatever topic it is that we're working with? And so I think what the world says about work is that work is something you have to do. That's the first part of it. But if you're lucky and you kind of land yourself into the right career or the right job, then work can become this great part of who you are. Like it can take up almost part of your identity that can get tied into it because I've got this fantastic job that I just love and it kind of defines who I am a little bit. It's something you have to do, but if you're fortunate, it can become a part of who you are. Scripture says something entirely different about the nature of work. What the gospel has to say, what the Lord has to say about work is that work is image-bearing. It's partnership and it's worship. That's what we're going to work our way through over the course of this morning. But in order to do that, I need to introduce you to a character who is present all throughout the book of Proverbs. Uh, He pops up repeatedly, and typically it's fairly negative. That character is what the CSB calls the slacker. Your translation might say the sluggard or the sloth or not the animal, but like a slothful person, or the lazy person. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this individual. First and foremost, the slacker is lazy. That's what we typically think of when we think of the word slacker. Proverbs 26, 14 says, as a door on its hinges, so is a slacker on his bed. It's an incredible image, just back and forth. Never getting out, never going anywhere, right there in bed, lazy. Proverbs 18, verse 9 says, The one who is lazy in his work is brother to a vandal. But it's not just that the slacker is lazy. Proverbs also tells us that the slacker makes excuses. Proverbs 22, verse 13, the slacker says, There's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. And therefore, I don't ever have to get out. I can just stay hinged to the bed here. The slacker can't be trusted. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so the slacker is to the one who sends him on an errand. Proverbs 10, verse 26. The slacker generally takes work and just makes a mess out of it. Proverbs 15, 19. A slacker's way is like a thorny hedge, says Proverbs. The slacker is irrational. Irrational both in the way that they think, but also in the things that they do. Proverbs 19, verse 24. The slacker buries his hand in the bull, and then doesn't even bring it back to his mouth. The slacker substitutes wishing for working. Proverbs 21, verse 25 says, a slacker's craving will kill him because his hands refuse to work. The slacker is unwise and then is surprised by the results of his lack of wisdom. Verse, Proverbs 20, verse 4, the slacker does not plow during planting season, and at harvest time he looks and there is nothing. In his own eyes, a slacker is wiser than seven who can answer sensibly. That's Proverbs 26, verse 16. Lazy, makes excuses, can't be trusted, makes a 
mess out of their work, is irrational, trades working for wishing, is unwise, and then is surprised. The bottom line of what Proverbs has to say about the sluggard or the slacker or the lazy person, Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34, they say this, I went by the field of a slacker, by the vineyard of the one lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere. Weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. I saw and took it to heart. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Ultimately, the slacker's work speaks for itself. Thistles everywhere, weeds covering the ground, the stone wall ruined, and this teacher ultimately looked and saw it and took it to heart. The work spoke for itself. It's not just that the work speaks for itself, though, because the slacker's restlessness speaks for itself. His discontent, that's Proverbs 13, verse 4. The slacker craves, yet has nothing, but the diligent is fully satisfied. In the words of Derek Kinder, a commentator on the book of Proverbs, he says this, through shirking work, the slacker has qualified himself for drudgery. Let me illustrate the slacker here, and I'll use myself as an illustration. When I was in high school and in college, I spent my summers as a lifeguard at Clayview here in Liberty, and uh, I didn't particularly enjoy the job. I was always looking for a way out of it, and yet I needed the money to pay for car insurance and those sorts of things. And so when there was an opportunity while at work to not work, I would try to take full advantage of that. One way was that when the circumstances were right, and the right circumstances included basically only teenagers present at the pool, no parents there, probably uh, in the evening, and clouds, preferably clouds that looked at least a little bit ominous and gray. Then what I would do, uh, and I say I, but it, it was not just me, so don't, you know, <laughs> the slacker makes excuses. Um, what, there was a PA system at the pool, and it was kind of located in the guard room, and there was a microphone that you could talk over. And so we had a CD player in there, and uh, only one CD, Garth Brooks, Thunder Rolls. So when the circumstances were just right, you would turn on the PA system, put Garth Brooks Thunder Rolls into the CD player, you take that microphone and hold it up to the speaker, and at the start of that song, there's just this low, rumbling peal of thunder. And then you would look at the teenagers in the pool and say, gotta get out, kids! Thunderstorm! Everybody out of the pool, we'd shut her down early, and I would go be a slacker somewhere else, right? You're just making a mess out of the work. Lazy, looking for excuses, trying to avoid it at all costs. That is the image of the slacker. The work speaks for itself. The discontent, the restlessness speaks for itself. Let me make a couple of quick statements here. Number one, I think that the slacker is the way that he or she is, not because they were born somehow just intrinsically lazy. There's a cause for it. There's something operating at a deeper level than just, I don't want to work that causes us to be lazy, that creates within us this propensity to be the slacker. The second is this. We can be a slacker for a season, not as a lifestyle. It's not that you're 
the sluggard, and that's just the way you are, and you're destined for that for the entirety of your life. It's that we can go in and out of seasons where we're more prone to that than at other times. And then number three is that there's a solution for that. And the solution, ever and always, in all things, is the gospel. And I want to show you how that's the case. The way we're going to do this is that I'm going to give you five false narratives that I think we tell ourselves about work. And the narrative that we tell ourselves is powerful enough to influence the way it is that we behave at work. If you came home around Christmas time and there was an Amazon package sitting on your front doorstep, the story you told yourself about that package would influence the way it is that you interact with it. If it were 2001 and we were at the height of all the anthrax sort of scare and paranoia that went on then, and you had no idea who ordered that box, it might cause you to call the police and get a bomb squad out there so that they could open it up and you'd make a big scene in your neighborhood. If you were the one who ordered something for a family member or a friend or your spouse, and it was a gift, you would hustle over there and grab it and take it to whatever the hiding spot is for gifts inside your house. If you've got a four-year-old who regularly will one-click items for themselves off the iPad or something, then you might see that package and think to yourself, I don't have to do this awkward thing where I try to return it again because little Johnny ordered himself something off of Amazon. If it was from someone else, in your family, and you would think, that might be a gift for me. Maybe I should take a peek. Or maybe I'll just be upstanding in my integrity and wait for my spouse to come home and take it to whatever the hiding place is. The story you tell yourself will influence the way you interact with it. I think there are five false stories we tell ourselves about work, and then three necessary corrections and a glorious truth that we're going to end with. So what are those five false narratives? Number one, work is necessary evil. That work is just something we have to do. We just kind of suck it up and deal with it and kind of muscle our way through for the entirety of our adult lives and one day we'll be able to retire and the necessary evil will be gone. That's a total misunderstanding of how it is that work enters into the world. And in order to get this, we need to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I've said this before, but if you really want to understand what Scripture has to say from beginning to end, it's paramount that we understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We see the foundation for both sin and redemption and all that the Lord is going to do in those first 11 chapters, and work is no different. Most of us, when we think about work, we think about Genesis 3, 17 to 19, after the fall where the Lord says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thistles and thorns for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. That's how most of us think of work, I think. It's this curse. But the reality is, Work has its origin in a God who sets his hands to the creation of all that we see around us. God's a creator. He works. It's who he is, and the pinnacle of that creation is humanity, made in his image. So hardwired into all of us is this ability to work, to do something with our hands. In fact, it's even mandated from God that we partake in that. In Genesis 1, 28, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. He tells that to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 2.15, he tells Adam and Eve to watch over it, the earth, and work it. 
cultivate what's there. Partner with me in creating and taking the natural stuff that I've put into the ground and turning it into civilization and turning it into technology and products. That that's what work is supposed to be. It's in his image. Work exists before the fall of humanity. It will exist after the glorification of humanity. Incidentally, there are two institutions that exist before the fall. Family and work. Those are the two. Hardwired into us, our desire for relationship, both with the Lord, but also with one another, and to work. And so what happens at the fall is that work becomes marred by the curse, but it's not the curse. God didn't introduce work as punishment for sin. Instead, work became difficult because of the presence of the fall. Thorns and thistles, Genesis chapter 3 says. You'll eat that bread by the sweat of your brow. It'll be a struggle. Work is a good thing done in the image of God and in partnership with God, but because of the fall, it's just riddled with struggle. But it's not evil and unredeemable. It's merely stricken by the reality of brokenness. And so whatever you're going to wake up and do tomorrow, stay at home with the kids, go off to an office somewhere where you do, where you do IT or you work in sales or you're an engineer or some sort of programmer, you might be a banker or a lawyer or an accountant, you might be in the military, the like public service jobs like the police, the fire department, Whatever you're going to go off and do tomorrow, it's difficult. Not because it's a punishment, but because it's marked by sin. The relationships aren't great. The meeting doesn't go as smoothly as you want it to. The actual task of making the thing is hard and difficult to do. Sometimes you don't want to just set your hands to raising kids. You want to set your hands on the kids because they are a struggle. Work is under the curse but it's a mandate. It's a blessing from the Lord. So what happens is when we tell ourselves this false, negative, our false narrative, we create this separation where we think work is this secular thing and the rest of my life can be this like sacred space. And we create this unbelievable dichotomy between what we do in church services on Sunday mornings and then what we do when we wake up on Monday as if they're totally separate. I check my Christian spiritual self at the door on the way out of church and then I pick up my work self and I go and I do work because I just have to. And then I can spend the rest of my life doing something else. That separation creates a dissonance within our souls and we may try to squelch it. We may even become blind or numb or deaf to it, but it's there nonetheless and we know it. And it's because we tell ourselves this wrong story about the meaning of work. Here's another one. That work is strictly about provision. You do your thing at work, you collect a paycheck because what you really want is the weekend. Or what you really, really want is retirement. And you just need to build up enough provision to provide yourself with the life that you want now and set yourself up for the future that you want later. And so you go in, you punch the clock, earn a paycheck, take the paycheck home and do just anything else. Work is just provision. These two false narratives turn work into something that has no dignity and needs to be ennobled. It needs to be raised back up to its proper place. These two false narratives undervalue 
the reality of what work is supposed to be in the life of an individual. I want to separate uh, into two sort of generations here. Everyone who's like Generation X and up, I think these two false narratives are what work is typically positioned as. I'm going to go and I'm going to punch the clock. I'm just going to cash a paycheck. I'll cash that paycheck from the same place for 25 years or 35 years or 40 years, and then I'll retire and do something better. It's just a necessary evil. It's just the means of provision. There's nothing wrong with loyalty to a company. There's nothing wrong with collecting a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that there are thorns and thistles involved in work. But if we downgrade it to that, we've lessened and misunderstood what work is supposed to be. That might be the case for you. The other end of this is everyone who's like a millennial and down. So a millennial or generation Z. We have a tendency to overvalue work. We misapply the truth of it. And so we tell ourselves one of these false narratives, that work is where I'll ultimately find fulfillment. We tie our identity to our work. We think that we're going to find the perfect job that makes us feel like we never have to work a day in our life. Like I just go to work and I'm so totally fulfilled by it that I'm going to find the thing to where I roll into the office and there are no thorns and no thistles and everything's wonderful. And if it's not wonderful, I must be in the wrong job, so I'll go and find a different one. And because of that, millennials are jumping careers at staggering numbers in a way that generations before us have never done. It's because we've raised work up to this overvalued place where we think we're going to find ultimate fulfillment at our place of employment or because of the work of our hands. And that's asking work to do something it was never intended to do. It's not intended to be the place where we gain ultimate fulfillment in life. And what happens is, as soon as it starts to not fulfill us, we become the slacker. Weeds everywhere. I don't care about this. This doesn't matter. This doesn't make me happy. I'll just look for something different. I thought this was going to fulfill me, but it's not. So the stone wall gets torn down. Thorns and thistles come up. The vineyard gets overrun. We become the slacker. The problem is we tried to find fulfillment in a place where it was never ultimately going to be available. Here's number four. We think that work is the means to a legacy. I think, traditionally, this probably weighs most heavily upon men, and it's probably most uh, traditionally financial. We think that work is going to be the place whereby we have something to leave behind for the next generation, that the most important thing I have to offer my children or my grandchildren is a really stable financial circumstance that's better than the one that I inherited from my parents and that that's the legacy I'm going to leave behind, or we think, I just really want the children in my family to understand that we as a family, we work hard, and so I'm going to go to work and plug away and give my all there so I leave this legacy of hard work behind to my children. There's nothing wrong with wanting to set your family up in the future financially. There's nothing wrong with wanting to leave a model of hard work. But if you think that work is your ultimate legacy, you're looking in the wrong place. You've overvalued the place of work in your life. If you want to really get like a good picture of this from the Bible, spend the next week or so reading the book of Ecclesiastes. 
In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author positions himself as the teacher who looks around at life around himself and just constantly says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. Futility, futility. This is all futile. And his harshest critiques are reserved for wealth and work and what it is that you leave behind in a physical sense. Because as the teacher says, it's all going away with you. You might leave some money behind, but eventually that bank account's going to hit zero and then it's gone. You might leave a legacy of hard work behind, but eventually it's going to run into the family member who just doesn't like to work hard and then it's gone. Men particularly, there's a better legacy to leave than that. There's a better legacy to leave than one that's ultimately meaningless or vain or futile, like chasing the wind, Ecclesiastes says. There's a legacy that you can leave of a passionate longing for your relationship with Jesus Christ that sets your children up not for something temporal, but for something eternal that displays for them where true value and true worth actually lies. And it's not at the office. It's not at the thing you set your hands to. It's the thing you stake your soul upon. That's the legacy we want to leave. But oftentimes, we overvalue work and we put it in that place. And maybe we'll leave behind a nice inheritance, but someday that'll be gone. And then what's left? The last false narrative is that work is the means to significance. That this place where I give my hands to, this thing I give my hands to, if I do it well enough, if I do it long enough, then I'll really matter. It ends in a feeling of disillusionment. You feel like you're slaving away and no one notices. You see the fame and the renown that someone else in your field or in another field has gained because of their work and you can't figure out for the life of you why it is that you're not experiencing the same thing. And eventually you hit a place where you're just so disillusioned with it that you'd rather just be hinged to the bed. Back and forth. Not going anywhere. Like the slacker. The misapplication in all of these is that we tend to look at work as though it's something that's going to provide ultimate satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be satisfied with what we do at work. The trouble is that when we allow ourselves to drift to thinking that our soul's deepest longings can be met by what our hands are able to produce, and that simply isn't true. In those bottom three cases, work needs to be demythologized. We need to bring it down to the level of reality instead of elevating it into a place that it's never meant to fulfill. How do we correct those five false narratives? Whether it's ennobling work into its rightful place or demythologizing work into its rightful place. Well, I think we need to tell ourselves a different story that's based on three biblical principles from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. First, work is image-bearing. That's what it is to work. It's part of who we are as human beings that like God who created everything, we have the ability to work. There's dignity in what we do. You might pull teeth as a dental hygienist or you might pull files out of a file cabinet as an administrative assistant. You might write tickets to someone as a police officer or you might argue tickets away as an attorney. But there is dignity in the thing that you do. When you approach your work tomorrow, whatever it is, Remind yourself that you're bearing the image of an unfathomably great and glorious God. And so what's the issue with the slacker? 
Well, he or she is bearing a bad image. As a follower of Jesus, if we drift into being the slacker, we're bearing an image that's false about who God is, about who the Creator is, about who it is that we worship. And so we need to restore work as image-bearing. That means that work becomes more noble than necessary evil or just about provision because it's done in the image of God. But it also means that work comes down to the right place because there's something greater than work, the one who created it. So work isn't the be-all, end-all. Second, we need to remind ourselves and tell ourselves that work is partnership. It's partnership with God in the ongoing cultivation of his creation. There's joy in work because we have the chance to partner with God in cultivating and enhancing this amazing place that he's given us. In the story of the Tower of Babel, before they try to go about building a tower to make a name for themselves, we're told in Genesis chapter 11 that they had learned how to make oven-baked bricks. That was like a huge technological advancement. They had never done that before, but someone discovered it, how to do it. And then they warped it into the wrong thing and said, let's make a really big tower and make a name for ourselves. But there's a partnership with God when we build whatever it is that we build, whatever it is that you do. You're partnering with God in the ongoing cultivation of what it is that he's created here. And there's an opportunity to do work that brings his kingdom realities to bear in this place. Broken as it might be. Being a Christian at work is more than smiling at your coworkers. It's more than leading a lunchtime Bible study or handling your work with excellence, which is what we can often turn it into. Being a Christian at work means recognizing that you're partnering with God while you're there. So what's the issue with the slacker? Well, the issue is that he or she is shirking responsibility, trying to pass that off to someone else as if that's not part of who we're created to be. Tim Keller says this in his book, Every Good Endeavor. We are called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice regents. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos, creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and natural, our physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. Work has dignity because it is something God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. No task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. Work is image-bearing, it's partnership, and then last, work is worship. There is glory to be had in work, but it's not yours. It's God's. Adam and Eve's work was never about them working in the garden and making themselves look great. Their work was about cultivating what God had put there in order to bring Him glory. And the same holds true for us. What's the issue with the slacker? He or she's worshiping the wrong thing, thinking that the work is the thing that's ultimately going to make their life what it is. Work is going to be what brings fulfillment. Work is going to be what ultimately makes a legacy or significance. That work is going to be the thing that sets them up for real living in retirement or come Friday afternoon. Work is image-bearing. It's partnership. And it's worship. Like we did a few weeks ago in a message on self-control, I sat down with a member of our congregation and I asked him uh, some questions about work and some questions about how it is that we tell the right story about work and keep work in its rightful place. His name is Jamie Shipman. He is a tax law professor here in our congregation. 
And I asked him if he were to sit down with someone and offer them kind of some practical tips about how to actually tangibly keep work in the right place, what would he have to say? And so here's like five minutes from Jamie about that. Let's end with, with a couple more questions here. One being, if you were to sit down with someone and let's just say uh, they're about to start into their first real, you know, job in terms of a career. They're out of college or, or not going to college and they're entering the workforce or whatever the case might be. And they were to sit down with you and say, Jamie, I want to have Christ as the centerpiece in my life and not to allow work to get in there. Can you just help me with how? What, what kind of practical sort of advice would you give them? Um, well, it's, it's not just like a kind of easy one-step, two-step process thing. It, it's something that you have to um, put to the forefront of your effort every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, some of the things that I do to, to make, it, make it possible. Um, the first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning, there's, there's two things that I always make sure I, I or I, at least I do my best to, to do. And that is, one, I make sure I spend time in the Word. And not only spending time reading the Word, but meditating on, on what it's saying, how it's impacting me today, how I can utilize that for what I'm to that, doing today. Um, and then I take care of myself physically, so I make sure I exercise and I make sure that I get a good breakfast um, to get myself started and fueled spiritually, ready for that battle that's going to go on today. Um, not, so spiritually as well as physically ready to take on the day that, that, that is going to come. Then I, uh, I think, so that's kind of starting point. And that's making sure I'm taking time for myself um, and spending time with God. Make, in, in that relationship there. The other thing, and one thing that LCF has, has done for us um, is allowed us to be connected with small groups. Mm-hmm. So being connected with others in similar situations. Um, and the men in, in particular with my small group that I can connect with and share about my day um, and what they're going through and being open and honest about that. And so having those people to go to to hold me accountable you know, and they asked me, so Jamie, what is, you know, what are you, is anything getting in your way? Is anything distracting you from what, um, you know, from being, with Christ being your center? So, and what can you, what can I do to help you to, you know, if you're getting, if you're in a, in a, a season where things don't seem to be working well, what is that I can do to help you kind of to get back um, on track? And then having also not only just the, the, the men in small group, but just, one-on-one discipleship too. Make sure you find somebody that's that's maybe um, you know two or three steps ahead of you in their walk to to walk you through that. Um, so there's there's that component, and that's really when I think about Christ in the center. And then one of the components is having your spiritualness and your growth is that that's a big component right there. Mm-hmm. Physical well-being is always going to be there. The emotional well-being, so taking care of yourself emotionally, being being um, aware of um, you know how our emotions are triggering because I think emotions that you're feeling and Drew Matthews talked about God and anger, righteous anger and how that means, I think that that can be um, God speaking to you, what are the emotions telling you that's a way that God can speak to you as well and so being in tune to those emotions and how that applies because that's also going to be helping you with the relational aspect of what you do every day interacting with people in your job or whatever it may be that you're interacting with. So having that 
in place. Um, and just the um, kind of the mental aspect of that, the relational aspect, all those, keeping all those in balance um, are some of the things that I think you can do. And, and each of those can, um, you know, you can go into more detail about sure. what that looks like, right? Um, but those are things that I think you have to have those in place and keep them, try to keep them in balance. And the system in place say, am I out of balance? Why am I out of balance? What do I need to do to get things kind of back more into a, a balanced system? Yeah, one of what I think about when I hear you say that is so often we, we like segment our lives. You know, I work at this time. I work out at this time. I do church things at this time or small group things at this time where what you're describing is that like I'm an integrated, like I'm one integrated being here. Yeah. My soul is one thing. Right. And I'm going to center that whole, my, the entirety of my soul on Jesus. And then that's going to play itself out in all these areas of my life that aren't segments. It's all one whole. Right. And and so that's just a, it's a beautiful description of that. Well, I think, um, I think we have to remember we are wonderfully made by our God. And he's given us some amazing, uh, each of us has amazing gifts, that, talents that he wants us to use. Um, and those talents are not to be sh um, kept inside of us, but to be shared. And to do that, we have to know ourselves, and we have to know those around you, and we have to remember, um, and I love how LCF talks about just coming to church on Sundays. It's not just to come into church for an hour, hour and a half worship, and then you leave it here. No, it's every part of your life, including your work, that, that where who you are as a Christian can be shining, and the gifts and the talents and the things that make each of us uniquely us can shine through in, in all of our daily lives and aspects. If we're going to get work into the right place, we need to tell ourselves a better story. We need to remind ourselves regularly that work is not the means towards satisfaction just at the end of the day, that it's not the means towards satisfaction in retirement, that work isn't about trying to find ultimate fulfillment or significance or to leave a legacy. Instead, we need to tell ourselves a story that includes work as image-bearing, work as partnership, work as worship, but ultimately, we need to be telling ourselves and reminding ourselves that the work of Jesus is our ultimate satisfaction, that he has set his hands to securing our salvation, and he did it perfectly. He perfectly bore the image of God while he was here on this earth. He's worked in perfect eternal partnership with the Father and the Spirit, and his work is one of perfect, glorious worship. When we know that and we cling to this truth, that puts satisfaction at work in our lives in a way that your career or your daily work never can. That means your work doesn't need to be relegated to the side as totally meaningless. It also means that it doesn't need to be in the center as the thing of utmost importance. The work of Jesus has rescued us from doing either of those things, and wisdom at work finds satisfaction in Christ before you ever go to work to revisit Proverbs 13.4. The one who craves has nothing, but the one who is diligent is satisfied. Our greatest work is to keep the work of Jesus at the center of all we do. What we most need to be diligent about is putting Christ in the center first and foremost and grounding ourselves in the truth of Jesus. That is where our satisfaction is found. 
If you're going to tell yourself a better story about work every day, the story needs to start with the reality of the gospel and end with the truth about work. We need to eliminate the separation that we do within our lives, the detachment that we often do from our work. We need to split out our identity from what we do from eight to five every day. We need to stop over-attaching ourselves from our work and remove the disillusionment that we let rule over our work lives by getting the gospel into the center and allowing work to slide into its appropriate, biblical, dignified, yet not ultimate space. That starts, continues, and ends with one glorious truth, that the work of Jesus is our ultimate satisfaction. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for work. That in work, we have the opportunity to bear your image in a broken world. That in work, we have the opportunity to partner with you in the ongoing cultivation of what it is that you've created here and to bring kingdom realities into this broken world. God, thank you that in work, we have an opportunity to worship you. God, thank you that we don't have to find our satisfaction in the thing that we do with the bulk of our day every day, but instead we can find our satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone, and we can stand upon that truth and allow work to be one expression of who we are as followers of Jesus. I pray that your Spirit would empower us to walk in that balanced truth, finding our satisfaction in Christ, but working diligently with our hands in your image, in partnership, and in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.